Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Today, I'm so excited because we are joined by my friend, anchor at the local Fox News, Fox 11 here in Los Angeles, a reporter and the host of the only statewide political show in California, Alex Michelson. Welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you very much, Jessica. Um, Congratulations to you on this show. Uh, Not only are you a, a phenomenal legal analyst, which we've all known for years, but you are a terrific broadcaster and a great interviewer. I, I genuinely, not saying this is a brown nose thing, really love this show. You've talked to a lot of my favorite people, uh, and you've got like a Terry Gross for the next generation vibe going, which is high <laughs> praise. So uh, nicely done on this, and uh, and it's, a, it's an important show, and, and I appreciate the invite. It means a lot. Thank you so much. And I was honored to be one of your first guests on your fantastic show. The issue is it was just starting. I think it was the second week. And I knew right away that you were going to go at least statewide. For those of you who may not already be watching, please find The Issue Is at theissueisshow.com. You can find Alex, and I'll tell you again at the end, at Alex, E-L-E-X underscore Michelson on Twitter. I love following you on Twitter because you always have a neutral, no-nonsense take on what's happening in the news. Let's get right to it. Alex, (laughs) you've been in the the news business for a while now. What is it, super broad question to start, what is it like to be a member of the media um, in 2020 in California and American, how has it changed already since you started? Uh, yeah, that is a super broad question. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that just recently I feel like I, I, I asked a question of Gavin Newsom uh, last week about his interaction with Kimberly Guilfoyle and, and watching the RNC. And I was described as veteran broadcaster by the New York Daily News. And like, to me, it was like, when did that happen? <laughs> so it's like, you've been in the media for a while now. Like, all of a sudden, you just got old. You know, it's, it's interesting how much has changed since I, since I first got into broadcast. So when I started at USC, the, the first year that I was there, um, Facebook was invented. Um, YouTube hadn't been invented yet. Twitter hadn't been invented yet. And Instagram was a way far off concept. And and to think how much has changed since then, how social media, how the internet, how the way that everybody gets their, their information. I mean, you think back about uh, the first smartphones and you think about Blackberries and how everybody was just reading emails there. And now almost everything is digital. Even most of our content is uh, derived and created for phones. People are looking at phones all day. So the way that people communicate is totally different. And then not to mention the, the sort of earthquake of a pandemic uh, and the way that that's shaked up everything, the way that we do and the way that we gather news, the way people are doing interviews via Zoom, the way that we're doing uh, press conferences from, you know, calling in from far away from each other, the way that um, we communicate in a totally, completely different way. Some of it for the better, some of it for the worse, um, but uh, it certainly is uh, radically different in the way that we gather the news, in the way that we consume news. Um, and, and I think there's real world consequences on that in the kinds of people that get elected, who that benefits from a, uh, an election perspective. 
and the way that we all think, I think, is is different because of all that. Okay, so there's about 15 great threads to pick up on. And thank you for tackling that unfairly broad question. Let's <laughs> start with something that I did want to talk to you about, which is social media. And it has, you're younger than I am, but it has totally changed the way we consume information, as you said, the way we disseminate information. I had this feeling that social media was going to be fantastically democratizing. And I'm almost at the point where I think it's doing more harm than good because we're dealing with campaigns of disinformation and misinformation. And so, you know, first off, do you think that social media is just exacerbating our polarization? And then second, I want to get into the idea of what's the role of the media in terms of acting like a fact checker on social media? Well, I think there's no doubt uh, that social media is exacerbating our polarization. I mean, look at the tweets that do the best. Look at the Facebook posts that do the best. It's not, let me provide you some neutral, um, you know, sober analysis. (laughs) Those are not usually the ones that do the best. Um, for the same reasons that PBS NewsHour is not the number one rated evening newscast. As much as people talk about the fact that they really would like a neutral uh, third, you know, eyes on things, for the most part, those sort of uh, that sort of content is not rewarded. Um, just much as people like to talk about the fact that if only we could have a newscast that's only good news, uh, then. Uh, you know, and that, yeah, that they don't watch those kinds of shows. As much as people talk about why do you put pursuits on the air, nobody cares, and then the ratings for the pursuits go go way up. Um, it seems like what is rewarded in social media is this, um, you know, the extremes, the the crazy headline, and, and it seems like people don't want to read past the the tweet. Like, say you put out a tweet, right, and it has a video attached. Most people are not even going to watch the video. They're just going to read the caption. They may not even read the full caption. You know, God forbid they get through all 280 characters. <laughs> they see one phrase, and then all of a sudden, it's one, whatever pre-existing bias they have, and they're all in on that. And then they'll tell you their thing. It seems like what works in social media is things that make people either angry or scared or sometimes it gives them hope or makes them feel better about something, but it is driven by some sort of emotional reaction and uh, and sort of a sober analysis of statistics that that doesn't really uh, translate that much in that in that forum. So what do you end up getting? What works? You know, President Trump he talks like he tweets, which is yeah. short sound bites that are consistent, often shocking. Uh, and that get a lot of attention and that are easy to, to share. He knows exactly what he's doing there. There's a reason why President Trump's tweets do a whole lot better than Joe Biden's tweets, because one, they're, they're more shocking and oftentimes more interesting because there's something to talk about there. Uh, but does that necessarily mean that that is the person that should be in charge of the government? Um, that's a whole nother question. So what came first, the Trump tweets or our desire for the Trump tweets? I mean, did he fill our a desire. void that was, yeah, yeah. It, so if I were to say that there's one Alex Michelson tweet that's an evergreen, it's you responding to a critic and saying, 
Thank you for your response. Have you ever actually seen my reporting and my show? Have you ever actually watched the issue is? And I see this about 50 times a week from you because it's somebody who's read about the first, oh, I don't know, 50 characters of your tweet. And then they call you, which is probably a testament to you, either a radical uh, member of the radical right or or the radical left. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it happens every single day. Uh, And it is so frustrating because you can tell even on Twitter who's a viewer, usually because they're commenting on something specific that was said and maybe something you haven't even tweeted about or talked about in social media. And for me, I, I have... I love interacting with people that are watching and sometimes I get it wrong. You know, we all get it wrong. And, and sometimes it's interesting to hear another perspective and constructive criticism from people that are watching is totally welcome. And I'll admit to somebody like, I didn't see it that way, or I missed that, or thank you for that, or I'm going to do better next time, or that gives me a different way to think about it. That's one thing. But uh, when it's somebody that says, how dare you not cover blank? When it's like, we did cover that, but you didn't watch you probably don't even live here. You don't have any idea who I am, but somebody else who you happen to follow retweeted something. You read a first thing and then you're making an assumption on me because of, I work for Fox or you're making an assumption on me because I'm a white male or you're making an assumption about me because of whatever. And you haven't actually looked at our content. And that is so frustrating. I mean, we we go out of our way to try to include both sides um, and to try to include different perspectives, because I think that's what, frankly, is missing so much in cable news is you have all these people that are just, you know, going to echo chambers that are reinforcing what they already think. And there's no place to actually hear the other side's argument. You are a, as you know, as a, you know, from your law background, you are a better person at, at arguing your own case if you understand the other side's case, understands the strengths and weaknesses of them, and then you can anticipate what they're going to say. It makes you a better debater. It makes you a, a more interesting thinker. Um, and that's what you know we're, we're trying to do as much as we can. But it, it sort of goes in, in the face of the, what a lot of is, is happening in, in media these days. And it's, it's a hard fight sometimes. It's a really hard fight. And I absolutely talk to my law students about this, which is I say, you know, the best advocates know their opponent's arguments better than their opponent. They're anticipating all the counter arguments. And the same is true for any issue, right? In order to come to an informed conclusion, you want to know what all the counter arguments are. And I do worry that social media and what you're talking about is this echo chamber of let me make sure that I find the voices that are amplifying my preconceived notions. And if I don't, then I want to make sure to point out very quickly that that person must be wrong and that there can be absolutely no point to what they're saying. And um, I know that you spend a lot of time on the issue is trying to create a place on your show, uh, the issue is, trying to create a place where you can have a full conversation, a full airing of the issue. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you decided to start your own political show? It's kind of an audacious decision and uh, what you envisioned for the show. Well, it, it, it wasn't my idea. Uh, like most good things, um, when it's the boss's idea, there's a better chance that it's going to happen. <laughs> so it started um, in 2018 
Um, I had just started at Fox. Um, I had no idea we were going to do a show like this. Um, and Jack Abernathy, who's the, the head of the TV stations, um, had an idea to turn this time slot, this Friday at 10.30 p.m. time slot, into a political show, not so much because he totally believed in me, but in some ways because that time slot is traditionally such a low-rated time slot <laughs> that they wanted to take it out of the ratings book for the rest of the week. Right. Count. Uh, so it's like, let's throw... <laughs> Let's throw this guy a bone. If we take it out of the, you know, if 10.30 and Fridays is suddenly no longer a part of the 10 o'clock news, we can sort of artificially stunt the rest of the ratings for the rest of the week. And uh, and we can, uh, you know, a, a political election is coming. At that point, it was the race for California governor. And, uh, you know, maybe we can throw some ad, we're going to have a lot of ad dollars for that. I think they were anticipating $100 million being spent on that race. So they thought this would be a good landing place for some of those ad dollars. And, and, you know, I know there's so many preconceived notions about Fox and, and, and its own take and everything, but from a local, I can't speak about the news channel. I've really interacted with them, not at all. But from my perspective, the, the, the note to me was create an interesting show. Good luck. And since then, they have not given me any sort of editorial notes at all. I mean, they've let me do it whatever I want, which is an amazing opportunity. Um, and so we, we sort of had this blank canvas, not a lot of resources, not a lot of help, <laughs> but we did have this ability to sort of create what we, what we wanted. And so what, what I wanted to create was like what I like to do, which is to have a, you know, smart, interesting conversation with people like you, people like almost everybody on your podcast so far have all been on the show, you know, um, and, and have a, have a, we have double dipped. It's true. Yeah, have, a, have a place to have a smart conversation, but not in a mean way. You know, uh, we, we had a, a landmark moment, um, was our third episode, which was you were on the second episode. And then on the third episode, we had on Gloria Allred and Lisa Bloom on together. And they had almost never done interviews together, but we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see that dynamic? And I remember in the middle of the first uh, segment, I asked uh, Gloria, I said, what was it like for you when you saw that Lisa Bloom was representing Harvey Weinstein? <laughs> we should remind to our listeners, mother and daughter lawyers. So yes. Gloria Allred, very well-known attorney, uh, known for representing uh, women who accuse men of sexual assault. Uh, Lisa Bloom, her daughter, very well-known attorney, previously well-known for representing women who accuse men of sexual assault, and much more, of course. But also, right. in this case, leads into what you're saying you said, and I she's apologize. Representing, uh, she's representing Harvey Weinstein. Thank you for doing what I usually do, which is provide the background concept. So, she's representing Harvey Weinstein, which kind of flies in the face of everything that Gloria Allred has done for her entire career and kind of flies in the face of everything that Lisa Bloom had done for her entire career uh, and something she has, you know, apologized for and said was wrong for her to do. So they had never been on together confronted about this. And there's just this silence and they look at each other and they laugh. And Gloria says uh, that I, you know, I love my daughter, you know, whatever she does. And sometimes we disagree and they sort of have a moment together but it was it was done in a polite way. It was a tough question, but done with love. And then later that segment, um, I, we experimented with playing Gloria's song, which is this Laura Branigan song, Gloria. And she just started dancing to the song. And, and who knew that Gloria Dan Allred was such a dancer? 
And then she said afterwards, she said, I'll come back on your show, but under one condition, every time I come on, you have to dance with me. Um, and then that became a thing. Like, let's have people dance. We started something called personal issues, which is where we ask politicians questions that are not on, um, you know, like favorite food, favorite movie, other things like that, sort of like what you do at the end of your show, which you get a different sense of who people are. And that those moments, the dancing, the personal questions, the other stuff that gets people off of the typical same old talking points are the most interesting moments. That's the stuff that po- people connect to the most. I mean, it was interesting. I saw in your last episode, you, you t- talked to, with Steve Edwards, who said, you know, I, I don't necessarily care about the policy either. It's those human moments that that people connect with. And and I, and as somebody who does, I mean, I do care about the policy and I know Steve does too, but um, those are often the, the moments that are crystallized, that break through, that that you get a different sense of who somebody is. Because if nothing else, if you can figure out sort of the soul of of a politician or get a peek into that. Is this a good person? Is this a bad person? Is this somebody who connects to, to values, has basic values like me, get, get a sense of who they are? I think there's a lot of value in that space besides necessarily just, you know, bringing up the same talking points, same issues that you hear on every other show. Well, and I think you really allow people to connect with their representatives or their would-be representatives in a way that, frankly, sometimes they don't. So you get them off the talking points for a second. And just hearing, you know, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite activity with your family on weekends? You know, in before times when we all went out on weekends, it creates a little insight into somebody who, frankly, wants to hold a lot of power over their lives. Being a representative is a very important position. And you do this very well. And it's kind of disarming because you say, all right, and now, you know, which superhero would you be and why? And I've seen politicians whiff those questions. It's a total unforced air and people should be prepared for you now. So (laughs) one thing that I wanted to ask about is when I'm, when I've been on the issue is you do a very good job of letting us talk and air the issues, but then you also will fact check us. And I've been thinking about this more and more, and particularly just based on a student question I had last night in one of my undergrad classes, uh, campaigns and elections. The question is basically, how much of it is it your responsibility, Alex, to fact check real time? I mean, how much should you not be just providing a platform, but saying, where's the evidence for that? Or that's just simply not true, sir. And Personally, what do you feel like is incumbent upon you? What's your responsibility? Well, it's it's a balancing act, right? Because somebody's a guest, and like I always think of it as like you're welcoming a guest into your home um, when they actually would come into our home. Now we're not allowed to have guests into our home, but um, it's still via Skype. It's like welcoming a guest to your home, so you don't want to be do it in a such a rude, off putting way that it makes people not want to come back and, and it sort of stops the conversation. But at the same time, you have a responsibility to your viewers and to the truth. I mean, my take is always this. Uh, my goal is for uh, to provide an outlet for people to share their views, explain their opinions, so that you get a better sense at the end of that interview what somebody stands for. It's not necessarily my view or my role on that show to um, tell you that your opinion is wrong, 
but to have a conversation so that people understand what your opinion is. Now, what I don't think is okay is for somebody to put out facts that are simply not true. And so if they are saying provably untrue facts, I do feel like there's a responsibility to point that out or to challenge them on that or to make that clear to the audience. Um, We can disagree on the opinion, but we shouldn't be disagreeing on the facts. Facts need to, you know, uh, have a, have a special place. And, and that's the, that's the hard part in, in our dialogue larger, which goes back to our original point about social media is that we don't have a shared set of facts. I mean, you go back to a, a TV time, which was frankly, before I was born, uh, when you have three networks and, and basically everybody's watching the same thing, you have three networks in a newspaper, you know, everybody is seeing the same facts, but they have a different take on those facts. Now, the problem with, you know, 600 channels and uh, a million different, you know, websites and, and Twitter handles, um, people are not seeing the same facts. They're literally seeing different facts. And in some cases, seeing the wrong facts, uh, because that's part of a, you know, another country's disinformation campaign uh, to mess up our election, which apparently is happening again with Russia. Or our countries. I mean, it's not only foreign influence, it's also a domestic influence. And one of the things that, and I want to ask you for, to help me selfishly on this, because this is a question I get from my students. And we're all under the understanding that in politics, people kind of mislead a little bit and they might say, oh, I, you know, I led the charge for this. And really they were just a co-author at best on a bill. And they kind of trump up, for lack of a better term, their own accomplishments. But this is qualitatively different. What we're experiencing in part because of social media is the outright lies, you know, the uh, the deep fakes, the sources of information that are just um, just incorrect. And I mean, now, and this didn't used to be the case, I get at least two to three calls a week from someone whose sole job is to be a fact checker. And so the question for you is to help me answer a question that I get from my students at least a couple times a semester, which is, Professor, I know you tell me that and I believe you, but what do I tell my friends when they point to something on the internet or when they point to something on social media and they say, but that's not what this person says? And this goes to your issue of, shouldn't we all agree on the facts? And I don't know how to explain because I'm telling you the truth and they're lying in different terms. Do you confront this and, <laughs> and how do you, how do you react to it? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's really tough. Cause I, I speak at USC a few times a year and, and the students have asked me that too, which is what sources do you believe? Um, and, and I think, you know, ultimately it should be sort of a, a, an approach of not just believing any one source to be true. There is some value in, um, and there is value in the old school way, uh, which is, you know, you look at a paper like the New York Times or the L.A. Times or some of these news organizations that have multiple editors where, you know, reporters get fired if they get it wrong, where there's accountability, where there's layers of, of, uh, of, of fact checking and of, of uh, sourcing and everything else um, versus some random guy's blog. I mean, there is a difference there. Um, that's not to say the New York Times doesn't get it wrong every once in a while but they don't get it wrong that often. Um, and, you know, these other p- places can't be trusted. I mean, I think one of the, the, the things that we need to do as a society 
um, which is to me as important as teaching a kid in high school calculus, which they're probably never going to use realistically, is having a, a sustained um, education campaign about media literacy as something that should be part of every high school curriculum in the country. Um, we should be teaching kids uh, things that are actually important for their real lives, just like we should have a financial literacy for every high school kid in the country to explain, you know, balancing a checkbook, uh, you know, investments, explain um, places to put things. But there should be uh, classes on what are good sources, what are reliable sources, what are uh, places that don't make sense, what are things that should raise a red flag. You know, all of that, I think, should be a, a part of our national consciousness as we all tackle with these issues. Yeah, it's telling people how to be analytical thinkers, not what right. to think, but how to get to an informed conclusion. And I absolutely agree with you. Media literacy has to be one of the things that we teach and not the way, frankly, I've kind of been doing it, which is on a you know case-by-case -case basis, but really saying you need to know that we have three branches of government and you need to know when you should be on alert to disinformation. And I say this to my students, which is the law hasn't caught up and likely never no. will. And, and so it's on teaching. you. I have about three hours more uh, questions for yeah. you, but I know that you have a Newsome at Noon event. And <laughs> so with that, we've learned a lot about you. As loyal listeners know, I end this podcast as you do, getting to know a little bit more about you. And so here are our three favorite questions. Number yes. one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? So I, my sort of main role model guy that wanted, made me want to get into this as a kid uh, was Tim Russert, who I got to spend a little bit of time with as an intern at NBC, but not a lot of time with. And I would be fascinated to know what Tim Russert has to say about all of the things we just talked about on uh, from social media and how it's changed politics. I'd be interested to hear what he thinks about Trump as president. I'd be interested to think to hear how he thinks about how to navigate this, how to help with information stuff, and just to hear his stories because he was a great storyteller. Um, and uh, I would love to learn from him and, and learn how to do be better at all of this. Um, and I think it would just be an amazing time to have a beer with him and, and swap stories. So that's my pick. You are going to be stranded on a desert island and you can pick one meal and it can't be your mom's cookies. Oh my God, that was so my good choice. and are always in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> tell us about, tell us about your mom and what she bakes for your issue is guests then. Okay. Well, first off, I, I loved Ben Allen's answer to this was I'm going to bring seeds so that it could continually create food. I thought that was a, a brilliant lawyered answer to this. And uh, so uh, that was a good one. Um, so my mom uh, started, uh, who's not really a, a baker. I mean, she, she is great at cooking and great at everything, but like baking was never her thing and cookies were never really her thing. But I remember the first day and the last day that I did every job that I was in, I would, uh, I would bring in cookies as a way to cause other people to come to my desk <laughs> that I would get to know so everybody. At staff. I did that in San Diego. I did that at ABC seven. I did that at Fox 11 as a way to get to know everybody. So I said, Hey mom, would it be okay for the first day of the issue is if maybe we made some cookies 
that way um, we can bring it into the green room. And it just as a thank you to um, the people that came on and they were a huge hit. And then she said, all right, well, let's try it again for the next week. And then it became a thing uh, that she makes these amazing cookies and brownies that people take with them. And, and my favorite part of doing the show by far, which is what I miss so much about this pandemic, was the ability to talk to people in the green room, get the gossip, get people relaxed, get people away from the camera, and then find out what's really happening in government or in people's lives over these cookies, which people loved. Um, so uh, I love her cookies and brownies. And she also makes an amazing chicken Parmesan. So uh, any of those things, would, would I'd be very happy eating all the time. Um, and since I was on a desert island, I would have a lot of time to work out, out and uh, burn off the calories. Crystal Michelson, we miss your cookies post-COVID. Yeah. We hope, we expect yeah. that they will be back. Yeah. And I do miss our chats, Alex, in the makeup chair, because sometimes those yeah. were the most interesting. Yeah. And the best place. Uh, exactly. You when get one intern- superpower. Oh, yeah. When oh, I was in, I'll do it quickly. When I was an intern at NBC I, uh, in Washington, I made friends with the the makeup lady. And she'd always tell me when the guests are coming. And I ended up having these amazing conversations with some of the biggest names in politics in the makeup chair, because it was the only time where they couldn't get away from you. <laughs> they were stuck. Yes. And they were stranded. Um, and uh, and it's also when people are the most vulnerable and, and they're just relaxed. And there's something really great about that. Okay. To, to your question about if I can have a superpower for, for a few hours, right? What, what would it be? So one, now we know you like a captive audience in a makeup chair. And yes, you get a superpower for one hour. What is it and why? I mean, this sounds like a cliche trite thing, but I think there's like nothing worse than childhood cancer and childhood diseases and poor kids that did nothing to deserve it that have been hurt unfairly. So if there was any way to like heal sick kids in this uh, and, and make people feel better and bring them joy... Uh, and give them a, a real shot at life. That's what it w- would be. I don't know what that superpower is, but I hope that superpower exists sometime. You're not going to hear any disagreements on that. Alex Michelson, you are a true friend. You're a true pro. It is a pleasure to know you on and off the air. You can find Alex on Twitter at Alex underscore Michelson. Find his show, theissueisshow.com. Watch it online or watch it on your TV screens. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Alex, thank you for taking the time. I know you really don't have to pass judgment with us. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Thank you for the important work that you do to um, bring legal education and political education and civics and ethics and everything that you do. Uh, I love the show and, and it really does mean a lot to be included. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you.